Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment that you've given us to share together in the sweet communion of the saints through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, we sang this morning about your precious blood, and we're mindful of Hebrews 9 we've recently studied as we pray this morning and dedicate this service to you. We thank you, Lord, whereas in the past the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of heifers would satisfy only to the purification of the flesh, the blood of Jesus Christ our Lord that was shed purifies us now from dead works. We thank you, Lord, whereas in the old covenant the high priest would go sacrificing for himself because he was a sinner and then for merely the unintentional sins of the people, Jesus Christ our high priest and Lord went once and for all into the holy place, the holiest of holies, and offered there His own blood, thus securing for each one who is in Christ this morning eternal redemption. Father, I pray that we would realize this morning in fresh and new ways the value of Christ's precious blood shed abroad in our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would sense, God, that history has dawned with the revelation of redemption upon us in manifold ways that prior generations of believers had not experienced. They did so in faith, but we have received in faith Jesus Christ who has come, who has been born, who has died, who has been resurrected and now ever lives, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And there in the true tent in the heavenly places, ever living to make intercession for us. For these reasons... We have unity and we have reason to gather this day. Now as we open the scriptures that were penned of old, as relevant today as when they were written, I pray that you would write them on the tablet of our hearts and use them to encourage and equip your people to stand in the day of adversity and to speak boldly of the power of Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in that holy name we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open up the Scriptures together, and I would invite you to do so with me this morning by turning in your Bibles to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. As you're turning there, I'll give you a title for today's message. Our title for Psalm 59, as we study it this morning in its 17 verses, is Adversity Anthem, a song that is fitting for times of difficulty, times of struggle, times of adversity. Times of testing, tribulation, persecution, really of any sort, and at any time. Of course, David is a great prototype for this kind of psalm in the fact alone that he himself endured so much during his lifetime. Not only did David endure a lot, but he was inspired by the Spirit to write these words. And so he had them recorded and preserved sovereignly by the power of God for us to appreciate and apply today. So stand with me if you're able, with your Bible open to Psalm 59. And out of reverence for the Word as we stand, I'd encourage you to follow me as we read along God's Holy Word. Here we have Psalm 59, beginning with the title, To the Choir Master, According to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David, when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. Verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil, and save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine, they run and make ready. 
Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah, verse 6. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths, with swords in their lips, for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in His steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget. Make them totter by your power, and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. For the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath. Consume them till they are no more, that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah, verse 14. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and growl if they do not get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I'm reminding us this morning, or we should be mindful this morning as we read these verses, that the title of this morning's message reminds us of a particular type of psalm that David has already included in the Psalter. Psalm 58, for instance, notice the similarity in wording of its title. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. These words seem to indicate a type of song for a particular occasion. Do not destroy as a title or a kind or a type of song is fitting for any time of persecution such as David endured in his lifetime. But we find in the context of today's title in Psalm 59 a particular occasion that the psalmist references as inspiration for these words. David provides thus another installment for the Do Not Destroy Miktam catalog of the Psalter. David's life situations across the board just about during these fugitive years provide numerous occasions applicable to a song like the one we have today in Psalm 59. Yet this title informs us that there's more specificity behind these words and the circumstances that surrounded the inspiration of Psalm 59. After all, he says, this song was written when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. As we think about David's life and the circumstances and experiences he went through, it seems like they were quite extraordinary. When was the last time you or I were chased by wicked rulers and his henchmen across the countryside because we were the anointed of God's, uh, in God's kingdom and we were soon to be king and we represented a threat to the powers that be? Well, none of us have shared particularly in that experience. However, there are principles that relate to us today. Even so, it's easier to imagine these words being applicable in David's time, at least on a surface level reading and application, than our own. It's easy to imagine the direct usefulness of a song like Psalm 59 for David in his time, 
and the occasions and circumstances that he dealt with, that is, the trials of its author, but perhaps harder for us to imagine its relevance for us today. I was thinking about this and also thinking about a text, a forward that is, a post from Facebook or the like that Seth sent me, my brother sent me this week. And I'll read you some of the uh, quote that was there. Um, This was from Tony Miano. Some of you may know him. He's a street preacher of him. He's a street preacher here in the United States. He shares the gospel in the open air. And again, if in his situation, he might be able to relate a little bit more to David's circumstances. After all, you might get a heckler out in the open air as you're preaching God's word. But he related a circumstances where four of, a circumstance where four of his friends this last week have incurred more persecution than just a heckle. Listen to what he says. Quote, I have received word that, and then he lists four individuals, including a man that Seth and I have both interacted with online, a brother in Christ who is interested in proclaiming the gospel and has since uh, done so in the open air in England. And our uh, Tony Miano goes on and he says, have been arrested. So I've just read that these brothers have been arrested while open air preaching in Bristol. I've also received word that the brothers are rejoicing and singing hymns in their cells. This is not Paul and Silas to which he refers. This is not David's time. This is last week in England. And it's not the first time in our modern era, even in the West, which is supposed to be all tolerant and, you know, have the ideal of religious liberty and so on, where Christians out preaching the gospel have come under fire and persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The circumstances that David refers to as he writes Psalm 59 do apply in our life today. Can you think of this song? on the lips of those four brothers, even this morning, if they are still incarcerated in Bristol, England. They might lift up their voices and say, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. And in every line and in every instance, suddenly the relevance of Psalm 59 floods into our experience even today as we sing God's immutable, holy word. My family and I have been memorizing the psalms recently. We try to take one psalm a month. I try to write a melody to it, and then we commit it to memory. It occurred to me as I read that text this week how useful the memorization of Psalm 59 might be someday. If God forbid, but if it is His plan, we'll embrace it. We should have to, a member of my family, go to prison on account of preaching the faith boldly and sharing Jesus Christ, yes, even in the open air. When we think of these circumstances in our life today, or the potential for such a thing, suddenly the riches and depth of Psalm 59 takes on a profound significance, does it not? It's easy to imagine those brothers, I mentioned in that text before, singing this psalm even today. And also, Psalm 59, though we may not be incarcerated right now, our hearts can certainly go out to the persecuted brothers and sisters across the globe that are paying a very high cost for their faith. And as we sing, as we read, as we confess Psalm 59, it becomes a prayerful and powerful devotion as we keep those who are suffering for the gospel in mind. Again, the word and songs of God never wither or fade. They, are never, they never lose their power or relevance. They will endure long after the self-centered psychological candy 
of many modern worship songs have overstayed their welcome. This is the value of of the Psalter and Psalm 59 as we find it this morning. Let us consider this psalm by three categories today under this heading, poetically illustrated themes of Psalm 59. Theme number one, frequent urgency. There are many times where David felt, David knew that he was in desperate need of the intervention of God. And I don't care what your nemesis, your adversary you are facing, there are frequent times in the Christian life where you stand in dire need of the intervention of God Himself. Psalm 59 poetically illustrates this. Frequent urgency. Secondly, victorious assurance. There is a certainty that David speaks to, sings of, and arrives at without his circumstances obviously changing on the surface. Nevertheless, his heart finds an anchor for his soul. That's victorious assurance. Number three, lavish praise. David finds, even in this occasion, in the difficulty that he is incurring in his mortal flesh, opportunity to praise his God with high, exalted, powerful, magnanimous, glorious language. Let us consider number one, frequent urgency. Reading again, Psalm 59, 1. David says, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Again, he cries out in similar language, doubling down on his plea in verse 2. Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. Here we have a parallel plea. Twice David incorporates the cry, the plea, the anguish, entreaty to the Lord, deliver. He says, deliver me from my enemies. Deliver me from those who work evil. Enemies and evil workers are also a parallel in this text. The value of Hebraic poetry comes forward in some of these devices. It is these repeated phrases that give it some of its distinctive quality. And it also communicates to us The main point I'm trying to get across this morning, there's a frequent urgency in the Christian life where we ought to be driven in desperate prayer, crying out for God's intervention on our behalf. There are moments daily, I would submit to you, where we, in struggling even against the enemy of our flesh, the devil, and the the sin that easily besets, where we ought to cry out, deliver me, Lord, from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me, and again deliver me from those who work evil. Save me from bloodthirsty men. This parallel continues, as we find not only in these two verses, but also in the ones that follow, repeated themes that communicate again frequent urgency. He says in verse 3, For behold, speaking of these bloodthirsty men, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. Listen to what he says in response to this urgent need. Awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. Rouse yourself, he says, to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. Selah. Again in his anguish and cry. In the exigency of the moment, he cries out twice, two different ways, awake and rouse yourself. He's trying with all his might to cry out and to reveal his desperate situation to the Lord in prayer. He's asking God to pay attention to him. He's not confessing that God is not omniscient in this moment. 
but he is expressing his great need for God's divine omnipotence to intervene on his behalf. This is the parallel plea that occurs over and over again throughout this psalm and others that again draws to our attention our great need. One of the great difficulties and great besetting temptations of the era that we live in and the relatively calm and peaceful and even luxurious in many ways and uh, as uh, circumstances, comfortable circumstances that we enjoy in this life is that sometimes we lose the sense of urgency, often perhaps. I would submit to you, if you do a historical study, it seems far more apparent that the church of Jesus Christ falls into impotency, lethargy, and apostasy much more quickly in a day where there is little outside pressure and quite a bit of luxury than it does in those days where the enemy, the bloodthirsty man, as it were, surrounds him and is an external threat every day or every hour, a potential threat when you step out and live out that Christian faith. Why is this the case? Well, the Lord knows that we grow weary and we uh, grow lax in our faith if we don't draw to our attention our great need for the gospel by making regular use of the means of grace. If not too much is happening on the outside to us by way of danger or difficulty, we might forget that there's an enemy prowling about always and at all times seeking whom he may devour. It was a grace in some sense for David to go through these difficult times of adversity where God stretched him, challenged him, and drove him to his own presence because he was so obviously lacking in his own ability to address his present plight. So if you're going through difficulties, if God has prescribed anguish of soul for you, if there are difficult times that you've experienced, recognize in part their value to communicate to you frequently the urgency and the dependency that we have on the Lord Himself. Why? So that we don't grow weary in well-doing and grow lax in our spiritual disciplines and commitment to the Lord or devalue or take lightly His means for keeping us in the faith. Let us not, for instance, through laziness, cease to exhort each other daily lest we, we become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let us not forsake of the assembly of ourselves such as we're doing this morning together and making use of the great things that God has given us even in this land in its relative abiding freedom however many more days he sees fit to grant it to us may we make good use of it reminding ourselves that the enemy knocks at the door and is prowling at the gate and we only in Christ can build up a strong bulwark against him Secondly, under this parallel idea, I'll have you note that David finds in Christ a sufficient fortification against individuals and against institutions. He says in verse 1, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God, protect me from those who rise up against me. He refers to them as bloodthirsty men. But he goes on to say, in verse 5, he says, You, Lord, God of hosts, are God of Israel, rouse yourself to punish all the nations. And sometimes in our mind, it's easier for us to imagine opposing someone who would make fun of us. That's our neighbor, a co-worker, a boss, or someone that, you know, is typing online and calls us out as a fool for our faith. But sometimes we shirk 
much more quickly when a whole institution stands in opposition to our convictions and our beliefs. And increasingly in this culture, brothers and sisters, such is the case for the faithful believer. You may be called to stand and make use of the means of Christ, namely the fact that His name is a fortress, that He and His steadfast love is a sufficient shield for you, even against a government who may stand in the way of your proclamation of your faith. This seems to to be the case, is it not, for our four brothers who are incarcerated even this morning, as far as I know, in Bristol, England. They were bold enough to share Christ on the street, and they were opposed, presumably, by an institution, the government. And the forces and the powers that be, they came and they locked cuffs on their wrists and hauled them away on account of what they shared That was the preeminent truth of the gospel. This happened to our brothers who preceded us in the faith, the first wave of apostles. And some of the greatest inroads into pagan cultures were made under these conditions. Suffice it to say that whether it is an individual or an entire institution, the world system itself, a government that is antithetical to our views and that would persecute and even martyr a Christian for merely stating his faith with conviction, Suffice it to say that during these times, God provides a sufficient bulwark in His Word and through prayer and crying out to Him for us to stand strong and immovable and always abounding in the Word of the Lord and the work of the Lord even under these circumstances. Notice again under frequent urgency a second point. There are incessant interruptions that happen actually even literally speaking as far as the literary structure of Psalm 59 in the course of David's song. I believe this is a, po- a poetic device to help convey something. Notice, for instance, three pairs of verses, 3 and 4, 6 and 7, and 14 and 15, and how similar they are. In verse 2, David says, Deliver me from those who work evil and save me from bloodthirsty men. And it's as if there's an interjection or an interruption, and he says the following, For behold, they lie in wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me for no transgression or sin of mine, for no fault of mine they run and make ready. He says, in, again, moving on into verse 5, second half, he's calling on the Lord to rouse himself to punish all the nations, spare none of those who treacherously plot evil, And then after the Selah, it's like there's a second interjection. He says in verse 6, each evening they come back. So who's he referring to? He's referring to this recurring problem, these bloodthirsty men, these nefarious forces who keep coming back to bother him and to pester him. Each evening they come back howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are bellowing with their mouths with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. After he calls on the Lord to bring a lawsuit against them, as it were, that they may stand guilty before his bar of judgment and answer for their deeds. In verse 13, he finishes that thought by saying that they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth, say law. Then again, we have this interjection and refrain, verse 14 and 15. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food. And growl if they do not get their fill. Now in the, in the form of this poetry, the idea that's being communicated here is these annoying dog-like forces who are mangy and rabid 
and would sooner attack you than think twice, keep coming back. They keep returning. They're incessant interruptions of injustice that invade David's experience over and over again. This pattern continues tenaciously for some time in his life. Some historical context briefly would help us understand this metaphor and imagery. Listen to what Herman Venema says of the dogs in this imagery as it would have been known in Mideast culture. This is a continued metaphor which must be well observed of a famished and rabid dog unable to satisfy either its hunger or thirst and describes men howling formerly like dogs, pursuing, seizing all good things for themselves, despised and devouring, and now destitute of all things, unable to quench their cupidity, despised, miserable, and desperate wanderers. Such did Saul and his messengers sent against David and Najoth Ramah show themselves to be and give the prelude to their coming misery." Another man in this commentary is reading Albert Smith wrote a paper called A Month in Constantinople in 1850, and he describes a scene that in his imagination that he heard each night when he would go to bed. It was rumored that some 60,000 rabid feral dogs populated the outskirts of the city, and at night they would move in to the premises. And they would growl and it would keep you up. And if you weren't used to the noise, you would seldom get a wink of sleep as this vicious growling, fighting, and consuming of anything and everything in the streets took place all night long. And only in the waking dawn of the morning as the light illuminated the city in the rising sun did they finally retreat to their corners. But if you lived in this area, you could expect that every night. This is the idea that David draws on to describe the incessant recurring issue of these rabid forces that continue to assail him. This repeated interruption is reflected in the text, even in the way it's repeated by way of refrain throughout the psalm. Now let's move finally under frequent urgency to the case in point. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Again, the title alerts us to the historical context, which is the inspiration for Psalm 59. And we find this record picked up in 1 Samuel 19, beginning in verse 11. Listen to David's experience that inspired this psalm. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair as its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent messengers to see David, saying, Bring me up to him in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair as its head. Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me like this and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill him? Pausing there, this was her husband after all. What a dumb question. I'm trying to kill this man without just cause. But you can imagine the scene, can't you not? Can you not? The place is surrounded as if rabid dogs were chomping at the bit and the opportunity to destroy David's life. 
And much like uh, Saul, when he was let down, Paul, when he was let down uh, over the city gates and escaped away to freedom, or the, uh, sir, or, or the uh, hidden uh, scouts, uh, Joshua and Caleb, in the promised land, the circumstances are similar. In the midst of all of these uh, rabid uh, soldiers who would come and carry him away, God provides a way of escape. He sneaks through the rabid dogs just barely, and he's on to find his new hiding place. This gives us something of the historical background that gives rise to Psalm 59 and helps communicate to us the frequent urgency in which David uh, was under when he penned these words. Second major point this morning, poetically illustrated themes of Psalm 59, not only is there frequent urgency, but also he communicates victorious assurance. Now notice the change in tone in these scriptures, gloriously so, as we continue to read in verse 8. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. Now you see, as David sets his attention upon a power that is above and over and controlling every minute detail of all of history and every creature who has ever lived, he finds a source of unassailable confidence. There are 60,000 dogs ravaging the city, but there is one who sits above it all who laughs at them. Even the nations, remember the institutions who who seem most formidable to our plight in this veil of tears? There is one who sits above it all, laughing at them, mocking, holding them in derision. David says in verse 9, O my strength, this is a term for God that communicates the attributes that he so depends on and uh, and finds so comforting to his soul at this time. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God are my fortress. My God in His steadfast love will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Notice, first of all, the laughable superiority of David's position. Under victorious assurance, David recognizes in the spirit realm, he is positioned so strategically and so securely that no weapon formed against him will prosper. And no battle campaign by his adversary will prove successful. The language that he uses reminds us of Psalm 2. I'll remind you again of these immortal words. Why do the nations rage, verse 1, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Notice the positional phrasing there. He who sits, which is to say he has secure authority on his ruling throne. Also it is to say he is above and over in sovereign control of every detail under his footstool. He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's funny. It's humorous to see these ants stage a coup against their master. What if you got a magnifying glass out and you went to your backyard and you looked very closely and you thought, what is that speck the size of about the head of a pin? And you find it's a don't tread on me flag and it's held by a single ant, you know, about half the size of your pinky fingernail. And he's got 15 other ants in a row behind him. And if you could listen and you could translate their motions and so on, come to find out, They are planning your overthrow. 
Next week, they will come, they will break down your door as you listen to their speech. They will declare themselves the rightful owner of your house. They will move in and seek quarter in your home and kick you out on the street. What would you do? You would laugh in derision, would you not? And maybe the next thing you would do is just gently lift up your foot and gently let it down on top of all 16 of them. Now that is a humorous picture indeed. No less ridiculous is it when the nations of this earth rage and plot against the Lord of glory and say things like, Your law does not apply to me. Let us burst your bonds and cast your cords away from us. He who sits in the heaven as these ant-like creatures, the Bible uses this imagery, they're locusts, they're a drop of water in God's hands. While they do such a thing, he holds them in derision. And his laughter strikes them dead. A single burst of the Lord's holy word from the depths of his declarative vocal cords is enough to shake the earth, to rattle it from his foundations, and to slay all his enemies with a single burst of his holy laughter. This is the picture. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. And if his laughter was so terrifying, how much more his wrath. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. Notice the positional language. Set king on Zion, my holy hill. That exalted place of authority, that place of unassailable superiority and prominence cannot be where God's word, God's power, God's anointed one, God's Messiah cannot be defeated. The only hope, in fact, for any institution or individual who would deny or despise this one is for them to be wise. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, verse 10 and 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling, verse 12. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. Our religious liberties are being threatened in this land. Most of our so-called evangelical leaders They go and grovel at the table saying, please just let us have this right. Please just let us have this right. Please don't, uh, please allow us maybe a seat at the table. As if our call representing Jesus Christ is to send a lobbyist to K Street so that we can have this cute, you know, quaint little corner of gospel and a culture going to hell. This is the wrong picture. If any of us are called to go and represent Christ anywhere, institutionally or to an individual, we go representing the crown rights of Christ. We go as an emissary and an ambassador declaring, my God sits in the heavens. He laughs at derision at your lawlessness. You will hold, he will hold you to account. There is a day of reckoning. I urge you to repent. I don't come to your feet begging that you include me with a small piece of this pie you sovereignly own. I come here in the compassion of Jesus Christ begging you to bow on your knees before it's too late. Now, when David stood on this firm soil, he was unshaken, even though he was on the run and surrounded by the rabid dogs of false authorities. The whole nation, a bounty on his head, was opposing him virtually speaking, including the king and all his henchmen and the army. But David, knowing the position of Jesus Christ, his authority, the Messiah to come, and God who reigns in the heavenlies, though he's under this incredible emergency, can say with confidence, You, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. This, brothers and sisters, 
is victorious assurance. It's communicated by this positional language. The rabid dog is no match for the hased, if you will, security. That's the Hebrew word that's translated steadfast love. My God in His steadfast love, that is His covenant-keeping loyalty that's marked by His promises to those who are His own. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God of all His people, and that steadfast love, there is no force in the universe that can unseat it. Time and again, David refers to this hased. He says so in verse 16, I will sing aloud of your steadfast love. In fact, the last words he closes his song with refer to this power when he says, the God who shows me steadfast love, He again is His fortress. He is His strength. Next, under victorious assurance, David calls for a prosecution to move forth against those who have violated God's word and law. He says, interestingly, first in verse 11, kill them not, lest my people forget. Pausing there and noting this surprising phrase, kill them not. David is asking for judgment, but he's not asking for judgment at the expense of God's glory or God's purposes to display and to preach his truth and his word in it. In other words, you might ask yourself the question, if God's so sovereign, why doesn't He push a button and just eliminate all evil from the earth? Part of His reason, in His unsearchable wisdom, is to teach something of His character through these difficult circumstances. David is not asking for a magic button to destroy by nuclear holocaust all his enemies in one fell swoop if that's not God's plan. He understands that there's an even higher call, and that is for God's people to realize that He is sovereign, He is the one who sustains them in adversity, and getting through it too easy might allow them to fall away or to go astray from the God who keeps them. He says, instead of the evil ones, make them totter by your power and bring them down. David longs for the day and sees the value in the tottering and in the crumbling of the Tower of Babel, as it were. David understands that there is purpose in God displaying for all the world to see, who have eyes to see, that the systems of man, the idols of this world, the pagan idolatrous positions of any knowledge, any philosophy, any idea that would exalt itself above the knowledge of God are unsustainable. And when they collapse on their own weight, the fool is shown even more to be the fool. If an earthquake came through in one fell swoop and destroyed all the wicked, perhaps we wouldn't have the added benefit of seeing the failure of their ideas. But when God endures with false ideas that have cost millions of lives, and we see an organization, an institution such as, say, the Soviet Union, collapse on its own weight, there is historical value in that. It shows that any other way of organizing ourselves or promoting a system of salvation or security apart from appeal to God's holy word is utter foolishness. It ends in defeat. It becomes its own judgment hammer. And David sees the value in this. David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is declaring such things when he says, O Lord, our shield, and then verse 12, for the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride. For the cursing and lies that they utter, consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more. David imagines something like a court situation 
where there is a person defending himself, there is the judge representing the law, and then there is a case brought by the prosecutor. And in this prosecution, David is desirous that God's law is affirmed. He wants clearly to be featured in the accountability of the wicked, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie. And when that word and that law is proclaimed judiciously in this situation, those who see judgment for the same recognize that God establishes a standard of righteousness and falling short of it is deserving of death. And the only way to receive eternal life is in Jesus Christ, the great law keeper. This is the gospel context that helps to frame the idea or the uh, circumstances, the pattern that David is using as he brings this case, the prosecution, if you will. Matthew Henry uh, identifies a few things that David, things that David foretells concerning his enemies. Number one, David foresees God would expose them to scorn. David sees how God in his in, uh, interaction under these conditions will reveal the foolishness of, the enemies, of his enemies as we have seen. Secondly, that God would make them standing monuments of his justice. David sees value in God making these notorious, infamous enemies of God's people who are a historical blight in the course of humanity to make them standing monuments of God's justice. When they, are, when they are dethroned, think of Nebuchadnezzar, those years that he was out eating grass, having lost his reason, reduced to a mere beast by the sovereignty of God who took his cognizance away from him for a moment. That story is immortalized in Scripture, and it was there for all to see at the time. And Nebuchadnezzar, in his exalting himself futilely above the knowledge of God, when he was brought low like a beast, he became, and his story is recorded, as a standing monument for the justice of God for all time. Thirdly, Matthew Henry says that his, of his enemies... David envisions that they may be dealt with according to their deserts. In the end, justice would be served as they got what they deserved. We might ask, well, is David a hypocrite in not asking the, self, uh, asking the same for himself? And again, I would tell you along the lines of our last psalm that in this is implied regeneration. David is not saying that I'm, an innocent, I'm innocent because I've lived a perfect life. He's saying, I'm innocent with respect to the charges, the false charges that Saul is bringing against me. However, I am justified by faith in the future Messiah. We look at Psalm 51, and David knows himself to be a sinner. But he also knows that all sin must be judged. And you and I know most clearly with the new covenant revelation, there's only two ways for sin to be judged. We pay for it ourselves, and God is proven just when every wicked man unrepentant is sent to hell. Or the justice for that sin is paid by the vicarious sacrifice, by the bleeding and dying of Jesus Christ our Lord on Calvary. Now, uh, fourthly, uh, David envisions that God would glorify himself in the destruction of the wicked. And finally, that he would make their sin their punishment. Lastly, under victorious assurance, there is a great purpose for what David wishes upon his enemies. Not that he would receive vengeance or the satisfaction of watching in a lawn chair and lemonade glee as the mushroom clouds rise in the distance of the adversary who threatened his national heritage. Nothing like that. 
Instead, he says in verse 13, after the declaration or request to consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, listen to this phrase. Why? That they may know that God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth, Selah. The chief end of David's request is the glory of the Lord, manifest, magnified, amplified, and visible for his enemies and for his people. The world needs to see that those who are outside of Christ will ultimately be judged, but God deals favorably with his people. This language of over Jacob, Jacob is that metaphor that reminds us of the people of God. Those who were called out ethnically speaking and God set his affections upon them as represented by Israel are fulfilled in those who are now believers, Christians in Christ. The faithful who have received by his sovereign hand an awareness of their sin and trusted himself in for salvation from uh, for uh, time immemorial. And David is jealous that these things be made known, not first and foremost that his plight be addressed, not that he get the satisfaction of vengeance, but instead that God may be known through these circumstances and trumpeted, magnified, announced, proclaimed, heralded to the ends of the earth. Selah. Think about that. Lastly, this morning, lavish praise. Poetically illustrated theme of Psalm 59, a poetically illustrated theme is lavish praise. David finds opportunity, as he does in virtually every psalm under these circumstances, to worship the Lord his God, unfettered by the adversity that clings to him. Verses 16 and 17 close with this crescendo of God-honoring glory. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress. The God who shows me steadfast love. When David, commentators have noted, I found this a helpful point. Commentators have noted in the course of this of this psalm, David uses terms and names for God that are correlative to his circumstance, or they correspond to the circumstance. Notice a few of them with me. Verse 4, verse 5. You, Lord God of hosts, are God of Israel. There's two right there. Lord, which is Yahweh in the Hebrew, the tetragrammaton that refers to that most hallowed name of God, Lord, Yahweh, Lord, or God of hosts. What is this language referred to? Hosts would be innumerable forces that he could summon at his will and command to do his will at any given time. David reminds himself that God is the Lord of hosts who can, with the snap of his divine fingers, assemble an army of celestial beings and indeed all of creation such that you couldn't see the end of it into the horizon all standing at the ready to do the will of their general, the Lord of hosts. Notice another name for God that he uses immediately after, our God of Israel. It is no comfort that God is the Lord of hosts unless you stand with him. He is not only the Lord of hosts, the one who can summon all of the forces of the heavenlies at his will and command, he is also the God that incorporates through his redemption and atonement his people into himself, into his good graces, into his favor. Thus, they are defended by those armies. 
by those hosts. This happened symbolically in this time by those who were covered when the high priest would go in and make propitiation symbolically on the day of atonement. When the one animal would be killed for the unintentional sins of the people as we read in Hebrews 9 recently and the other would be imputed as it were with the sins of the people and sent into Azazel the wilderness. Thus the sins being expunged and expiated from their midst and favor being thus secured those who believed in faith, this picture identified that God was a God of redemption, could truly say He is not only the God of hosts, but He is my God. He is God of Israel. And I am counted among them. Further names for God, He says, O oh, my strength, in verse 8, but you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. Excuse me, verse 9. O oh, my strength. Strength should be capitalized in your Bible. Why? Because it's a proper name assigned to God. God Himself is identified, He's associated in David's mind with ultimate, imminent strength. There is a sense in which the immutability, the omnipotence of God is a sure foundation for David as he goes to prayer and calls the Lord what He is, His strength. Not only this, he uses warfare analogies when he says by metaphor, O God, are my fortress. You, O God, are my fortress. We have in our minds that impregnable stone uh, place of strategic advantage where the walls are so thick and it's so high and commanding and it's so thoroughly fortified that any marauding band of invaders will never penetrate. This is the fortress that David has in mind as he says, O God, my strength and my fortress. He goes on to refer to the Lord in terms of his shield and also, again, steadfast love. My God in His steadfast love will meet me. So these are the corresponding names that we see that David uses in the context of his lavish praise to confess that although he feels the danger in one sense, he has no reason to be afraid when he remembers who is defending him. Secondly, under lavish praise, there's a compelling force that was evident even in the narrative account, again, of the circumstances that surrounded this event. Turning back once more to 1 Samuel 19. <laughs> Notice what happens. So David, you recall, he was surrounded, he had to flee, had to escape. It's something of a pitiful picture as he's let down out of the house on sheets, as it were, and he runs away and the rabid dogs pursue him to the next place of his hiding Verse 20 picks up on the story. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. Verse 21, when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again a third time and they also prophesied. What is happening? God is frustrating the attempts to destroy David by turning each successive wave of soldiers into prophets. This is staggering. Verse 22, Then he himself, so Saul himself, went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And he went there to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth, Rama, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it was said, is Saul also among the prophets? 
This was a glimpse into God's power to frustrate David's enemies. God can do this kind of thing. He can turn assailants and rabid op, uh, opponents to the gospel of Jesus Christ into prophets if he so chooses. When Saul shed his garments, that's symbolically powerful. Those garments represented his kingly vestments and authority. So long as he wore them, he was recognized by all as their king, their sovereign. When he shed them and lay naked, we have this picture of complete vulnerability. How is this proud king so proud, in fact, that he's motivated to destroy the anointed one after him because he cannot suffer that anyone would stand in a more favored position than he all of a sudden is stripped naked, prophesying, leaving his kingly robes behind? Well, this is the power of God demonstrated. This is a compelling force. Notice, brothers and sisters, the power of God does not always show up in the way that we ask. But that does not mean that his hand is too short to save. As David prayed for deliverance from his enemies, could it have even crossed his mind that each wave of assailants would be reduced to prophesying when they chased him? I'm sure that was the farthest thing from his mind. But God in his perfect wisdom and in the pleasure of making his glory known sought on this occasion to show his steadfast love to David and his powerful hand to intervene by reducing the rabid dog to a prophet. Powerful indeed. When David saw this, what was there to do but to honor the Lord and to offer him lavish praise? It makes more sense now when he says, but I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love. It makes more sense in light of these circumstances that he would have confidence that God laughs at them and holds the nations in derision, especially when he can reduce all of their armies to a band that is now prophesying and declaring the word of God as true, frustrating the plans of the evil one by turning them to his advantage in manifold ways. That is, God, or repeating again, God can frustrate the plans of the evil one by turning them to his advantage in manifold ways. Lastly, and in closing this morning, this confession of David's lavish praise, singing aloud of the strength of the Lord, singing aloud of his steadfast love, even in his distress, confessing that the Lord is his strength, singing praises to him because of his uh, fortifying stability that he surrounds him with in his steadfast love. Now this is a theme, a consistent confession through the life of David. Turn with me one last place, 2 Samuel 22. In Psalm 59, the historical context is the beginning of David's woes as a fugitive. This is at the beginning of Saul chasing him down. But notice the consistency and confession of faith in David's life at the end of his days. Now, Samuel 20, 2 Samuel 22 records this. Verse 1, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, and from the hand of Saul. When there was finally closure in this chapter of David's life, which lasted a long time, he said the following, he sang the following, this psalm, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. He speaks personally to the power of God in saving him in more ways than his physical circumstances, even to the depths of his soul when he says in verse 5, For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, to my God I called, 
from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. This is language of burial and resurrection. This is gospel truth that David is confessing in nascent form, if you will. Fast forward to the end of this song in 2 Samuel 22, verses 50 and 51. Let's back up to 49. Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love, hased love, to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. The messianic force of David's heart in Psalm 59 and 2 Samuel 22 is underscored in this parallel account as his end-of-life song provides for us a sample of the faith of this great type of Christ. The great salvation that Jesus brings that it, for us, His people, His anointed ones, if you will, we see coming through the pages in prophetic form in David's writing. Great salvation, David writes, he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. If you are in Christ this morning, if you have confessed your sins and placed faith in the Savior, if you can count yourself among Jacob, the people of God, if you will, if you can truly say that God is my strength, my steadfast love, He is my fortress, He is the God of Jacob, and I am His child, then this word in uh, 2 Samuel 22 is prophesying of you. That is, God is showing His steadfast love to you as He has done to David and his offspring forever. Let us close in prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for the truths encapsulated in your holy word. We thank you for their depth and for their power. We thank you for their beauty and their endurance. We thank you for their security and their promises. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in them is revealed the way of salvation. As faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. I pray for faith to be stirred through the proclamation of your word this day. For those that are in you, Lord, that they would be stirred to victorious assurance to proclaim the gospel, Lord, boldly, even in the day of adversity. For those who cannot say with confidence that they are among Jacob, God's people, that they have been ransomed, redeemed, regenerate, born again, I pray that these words would draw them unto the cross of Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation, and there they would find rest for their souls. Lord, I pray that you would use our service today for the equipping of these saints for the work of your ministry, that we might be found upon your return, occupying until you come, busy about the great privileged call of each believer to go into all the nations, preaching the whole counsel of God, making disciples. I thank you, Lord, for what you have done and what you are continuing to do through your people by the power of your Holy Spirit alone. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.